Hello and welcome to this week's Times Will Tell, the Times of Israel's weekly podcast. I'm Sue Serks, the Times of Israel's environment correspondent, and this week I'll be interviewing the award-winning Israeli wildlife photographer and Greenpeace ambassador, Roi Galitz. Roi is an enterprising businessman. He has photography schools up and down the country and also has a magazine and a tour company that takes people off the beaten track. But it's about his photography that we're going to talk today in the run-up to the critical UN climate conference that starts in Scotland next Sunday. There, the world's leaders will be discussing how to keep global warming to 1.5% above pre-industrial levels. It's a goal that's looking increasingly doubtful. I'll be reporting from there as part of a 120-strong Israeli delegation that's going to be led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Roy's pictures have been published by National Geographic and other prestigious magazines, and his footage has appeared on BBC Natural History programmes. Just a couple of weeks ago, one of his pictures received high commendation in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards at the Natural History Museum in London. Running with this podcast will be a Times of Israel photo feature so that you can look as well as listen. Roy, welcome to Times Will Tell. Hi. Hello. Hi, Sue. I'm going to start off with an easy question. What is it that you love about photography? Well, uh, it is an easy question. Uh, and I love, uh, well, there are several things that I love about it. The first thing is the ability to tell stories because photography is a means of communication. And with photography, I can take people like yourself uh, to my adventures all over the world. And when I see the people who look at my photos or listen to my talks, when their eyes light up, I know that they are now my companions on this adventure. So this is the first thing that I like about it. Uh, there are many others, but I think that's the basic one. I remember you telling me that you're able to take a slice of something that only you witness and save it forever, which is yeah, extraordinary. That's, that's the romantic part of it. Uh, I, so uh, it, photography is freezing for eternity, a fleeting moment of time, a slice of time. And I think this is uh, kind of my time machine. It's a great privilege as well. What are the places and environments that draw you most? So I'm, I'm based in Israel, I'm based in Tel Aviv, and I like places that are further away from home. I mean, the furthest possible. I mean, I would love to go to Mars, but since we can't go there yet, uh, I love going to the coldest places. Uh, I love going to the North Pole and to Antarctica and to Kamchatka and many, many other wonderful places all over the world. During your travels, what effects of climate change are you seeing? So, unfortunately, I do see too many of those. I mean, I that's what also got me into environmental diploma diplomacy. Because at the beginning, I wasn't uh, too environmentalist, especially not as I am now. Because I thought that, you know, like most people, you hear about it in the news, you know, you hear about the 1.5 degrees and you hear about everything. And, and there is a lot of dissonance between us and that. I mean, we don't see that. And I was the same. Uh, so uh, again, I, to, I must admit. Uh, but when you go to those places time after time, year after year, and you see that immense change happening, uh, that's when you have to do something about it. And the Arctic is warming up twice as fast as the rest of the planet because 
it's uh, you're switching between uh, white reflective surface in, into dark absorbing surface. And that actually causes huge dramatic change. So you, it's, it's amplified. I mean, you don't really see it here, but over there you see the, the glaciers melting. You see the polar bears starving. You see ice-free Arctic. You see the Northeast Passage opening up. You see everything happening in a much, much stronger scale than we can see anywhere else in the world. The beautiful photographs that I've seen that you've taken seem to deal less directly with climate change and more with what I would call play, food, sex and rock and roll. What would you say characterizes your photographs? That's not a bad thing to photograph, I I think. (laughs) Well, it's something that we can relate to. Yeah. So you're, you're right. I mean, there is, it's one thing to photograph depressing scenes, but I think that people are more susceptible to cute, cuddly and sex and rock and roll, as you mentioned, uh, rather than uh, forests burning. So this is one of the things that I'm trying to do. As a photographer, I try to humanize the animals to make them more relatable, enjoyable, lovable. And when people love something and care about something, and then you're telling them that it's being taken away, then people usually care more rather than just destruction, destruction, death, blood, fire. Uh, that, that narrative has been around for so long, and I'm trying to add to that narrative. And how do you connect between the lovable animals doing what they're doing and the dangers that they're facing? Is that more through the talks that you give? So that has a lot to do with my talks. Actually, in Glasgow, when we have the COP26 coming up, uh, I have been speaking there uh, two years ago at the TED convention in Glasgow, just about that. I mean, just about sharing those stories and telling the other perspective, not just, again, death and blood, but mostly about uh, the relay race of life that we are transferring the baton of, of DNA of life from one generation to the next. And we are in a long, long, long lineage that was never broken. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And I think that we are disrupting that uh, relay race and we are causing this uh, destructive effect that we have on this planet. So this is what I do. And again, whenever I post a photo, whenever I share a story, I always share the, the, the other side of it, not just the cuddly side, but also the the, the the losing side. I think that the analogy of a genetic baton is a very, very good one that's being handed down the generations of all the different species. Exactly. Yeah, you can, you're welcome to watch my TED Talk. I watched it and I'll try and include it in the article. Um, are there any animals to which you're particularly drawn? You seem to like bears, for example. Well, I... I... I do love bears uh, and I love my kids. So these are the two animals that I photograph the most. And I, I am fascinated with bears. I mean, I mean, bears are super smart. They're super intelligent. I always feel like they're like super dogs and I love dogs. And so I think that uh, there is a lot of similarities. Uh, but besides that, I love all the big mammals. So lions, uh, leopards, cheetahs, elephants, giraffes. I mean, they're all majestic. I mean, if you, if you, 
read about European response to the first giraffe that was brought to Europe in the Middle Ages by the Medici house in Venice, uh, in Florence, sorry, they they looked at it as, as something from a fairy tale. From And I try to look at it as, as they did, with their eyes, because there is something majestic about it. It's biology being pushed to the extreme by evolutionary pressure. Many of these animals are also key predators and their disappearance or extinction will have a major effect on ecosystems. That's absolutely right. So these animals are... Uh, usually the ones I'm photographing are apex predator and a keystone species at their environment. And we've seen all over the world that when you remove the apex predator or any keystone species from the environment, the entire ecosystem can collapse. Okay, so uh, we've seen that happening in Yellowstone with the wolves that were removed and, and the, with the bisons and everything has been collapsing ever since because once you take that delicate equilibrium that took millennia just to be achieved uh, and we play around with it uh, irresponsibly, might, might I add, uh, we do cause a lot of damage beyond the, the species that is being extinct. So we are looking at the same thing going on in the high Arctic. So when you remove the polar bears, we have more seals, more seals, less fish, less fish, population collapse. And then we have that entire destructive circle, that feedback loop. I, uh, I'm lucky enough to have visited Svalbard in uh, the Norwegian Arctic Circle, uh, which was a great privilege. I know it's one of your favorite places. We were not allowed to go out of the town without somebody armed, uh, but you actually get special access, don't you? How do you protect yourself and has your work ever brought you into danger? So, yeah, I, I do get special access. We all know about the Israeli chutzpah, uh, so I have plenty of that when it comes to achieving my goals. So I, I do get special permits, uh, production permits, as I've been doing films for the BBC uh, until the pandemic. And then I'm getting uh, access to the restricted zones. So it is dangerous and we must carry firearms as required by law. Uh, we've never used it. We don't ever want to use it, but we have to have it just in case. So uh, we do have, except for firearms, we do have a flare gun, which is... Uh, just a deterrent, I get never used it, and also uh, pepper spray, uh, which we never used, and it's also less reliable, like, just in case the wind turns on you, and then you're just spicing yourself yourself up for the bear. Uh, so the, the, the key thing about it, that once you use it, the bear won't trust you again. Okay, this is a dead end uh, with photography. And we don't ever want to harass the bears or make it feel uncomfortable. And the key to achieve that is respect. We respect the animals and respect their environment. We must remember that we are guests in their home and not the other way around. And once you forget that, that's when you're in danger. That's when your, your work is less reliable and the animals seem stressed. And if you look at my images, the animals are always relaxed and calm. I never want to make them in any, I never want to cause any inconvenience in their situation and in the interpretation of the environment. How do you win the trust of a bear? Well, again, it's with the respect. So you, we never approach it like, you know, straight on. We, we go there and when, once we see the bear for the first time, 
the bear already knows that we're there. Okay, they have stronger senses, especially smell, uh, than, than we do. And that's how uh, they know that we're there. So we are there, we are waiting, we are not approaching immediately. We are waiting a couple of hours, waiting for the bear to keep feel comfortable from a, from a distance. And when we approach, we approach in an arc. So we'd never go straight towards the bear. So we approach in an arc and then we let the bear get used to us. If we see that the bear is stressed and walks away, by the way, we call those bears bat bears because we only see their behind, uh, we never follow them because otherwise we just make them stress, more stressed and we only get bad photos of bears behind, which is not something we want. Uh, so that's how, I mean, there is a lot of technique behind it. It's not as simple as I'm, I'm telling you, but it's a part of it. A lot of patience. You need a lot of patience. Oh, yeah. Th things never happen when I want them to happen. <laughs> you obviously have great zoom lenses and the photographs look as if you're right there. But how close can you actually get to a dangerous animal? So we do get quite close, depending on the um, depending on the, the the bear itself, because every bear has its own character. Some are more relaxed, some are more skittish, some are more aggressive, some are more indifferent. Uh, so it it varies. Uh, I the closest I've ever been was less than ten meters, uh, which is pretty close to the world's largest land predator, uh, but. Uh, again, it all depends on the bear and only if the bear is very relaxed and very trusting and we have that mutual trust because I need to trust the bear as well. Uh, only then we can get closer, but it does not happen every time. I mean, it's uh, it's a unique experience when it does. And I go there five times a year. I mean, I'm, I'm there as much as I can guiding groups that want to, tourists that want to get closer and it's, a, it's an honor to be there with the bears. This Times of Israel podcast is brought to you by Corin Publishers Jerusalem. Whether you're looking to enrich your mind or your soul, Corin Publishers has it all. From Israeli history to the works of Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Steinsaltz, and other contemporary thinkers, including the brand new Magaman edition Corin Tanakh, with translation by Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb, Jessica Sachs, and many others. Times of Israel listeners can get 10% off your entire order. Just go to corinpub.com and use the code TOIPOD, that's K-O-R-E-N-P-U-B.com, and enter the code TOIPOD for your 10% discount. You speak at a lot of events around the world to raise public awareness about the challenges that nature is facing. What's your answer to those who say, why should I care if polar bears become extinct? It doesn't affect me. So um, when I, I'm, I'm getting those questions asked too many times, but I think that these are the smartest questions of all, because although I must admit at first I was kind of annoyed by those questions, uh, but if people don't understand why should they care, they won't care. So uh, that's why it's a crucial thing to understand. So for me, I think that there are three reasons why people should care. There's the, the personal reason, uh, because I love polar bears. But let's say you hate polar bears. You want to kill them all, okay, uh, just for the sake of argument. 
The second reason is the ecosystem. So polar bears, as we've mentioned, are apex predator and a keystone species and at their environment. And once you remove that, the entire environment collapses. And that also affects Iceland and UK with uh, fishing uh, population uh, decreases because of more seals. Okay, and so that's the second thing. The third thing is the global scale. Okay, how do polar bears connect with global scale? So the thing is that polar bears are like the cannery in the coal mine. So for those who don't know that analogy, so the, the coal miners had a cannery, that bird, singing bird, and that bird used to sing all the time unless there was a gas leak and then the bird would die or be quiet or faint. And then the, the miners knew that they must evacuate before they will be in danger as well. So that's the cannery in the coal mine. And the polar bears are the cannery in our coal mine because no polar bears, meaning there is no ice. Okay, no ice, land ice is also melting and we have uh, uh, slowing down and even stopping of the Gulf Stream affecting the entire northwest of Europe. And we have sea level rising all over the world with hundreds of millions of people in coastal regions with danger of floods, forced relocations, climate refugees, which we already have, climate wars, we're going to have famine, pandemics, uh, denied access to food and medicine, and more and more and more might come. And this is again connecting back to COP26 with a 1.5 degrees versus 3 degrees or 4.5 degrees. Okay, it's all connected. And this is why polar bears are like the ambassadors of the North Pole because they're cute and cuddly and awesome. Okay, but also that they are the cannery in the coal mine. World temperatures have gone up by around 1.2 degrees since pre-industrial times. And the goal is to keep them to 1.5. The indications are that we're going to go up to at least 2.7 degrees. Do you have any optimism that this climate juggernaut is going to be stopped? So, of course, I have optimism. Okay, if I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be active as much as I am. Because why try if, you're, if there is no hope? Okay, so I think that there is hope. There is a lot of things we can do about it. We are just trying, as we did with the pandemic, to flatten the curve, okay? So uh, we would hope that future generation would know how to fix our mess better than we do. So uh, I am optimistic. I know that we can reduce our carbon footprint. I know that we can uh, go to sustainable, renewable energy. And I know that there is a lot that we can do about it. Okay, uh, we are talking about new innovative technologies starting from carbon uh, capture from the atmosphere with plants or uh, I mean, I mean, factories and also about plants, which are trees, which are the best and most ancient carbon capturing device on Earth. So, I mean, yeah, of course, we can do a lot about it. And when people say it's too late, I mean, that's just sad. It's sad and it's pathetic because those people who say it's too late are usually the ones that won't suffer the results of climate change. It will be our children that will suffer the results of climate change. My kids will retire to pension in 60 years from now. Okay, 60 years from now, it's the year 2081. It's the end of the century. They'll still be around in the year 2100, hopefully. And 
What kind of planet will they be on? I mean, we all all worried about our pension plan. We're going to get a $3,000 or $4,000 pension plan. But we don't think about what kind of planet our pension will be on. And this is what we are fighting for. The the people who are not bothered are not only those who possibly won't be around, um, but the people who are actually causing the problem. Yeah, and they have the most to lose out of going environmental. I mean, we've seen uh, the, the, the COP26 and the, uh, and the Paris Accord are also talking about uh, carbon footprint reduction. And we've seen uh, Brazil and Argentina are going against the demand for a meatless Monday or reduced meat consumption because they have the most to lose. We see Australia going against that decision because they are the world's largest coal exporters. We see Saudi Arabia and entire OPEC, basically, going against uh, the the, the, uh, renewable energy demand and reducing oil consumption because they have the most to lose. So, I mean, those who are against it are usually against it for a financial reason, for profit gain and not for environmental reasons, that's for sure. There's been an interesting headline in the last few hours, which is the Saudis have decided to commit to net zero, but they're going to fund it through by selling oil. Uh, Your business ventures helped to fund your photography. Tell us something about the tours that you organized. Where will you be going next? What can people see? But also, how do you justify the carbon footprint? So we are traveling around and we do do take people to the most remote, amazing, incredible places on Earth. Uh, We are doing that with the least uh, carbon footprint that we can by using small vessels and reusing uh, energy efficient vessels and, of course, recycling. And we are also doing beach cleaning when we are up in Svalbard. So uh, we are trying to do our best. And the thing is that when we take people to those expeditions and we do take photographers usually and we do take people of high influence and high impact and everyone returning from those places is essentially an ambassador for these locations. So photographers share stories in magazines and TV shows and newspapers and blogs and social media all over the world. And the company owners and politicians that I'm taking and guiding in those places come back with uh, with plans, with results that they want to implement in their own companies. So yes, I am taking people that are passionate about nature and that want people who want to learn and want to create and want to protect. And I think that, and I hope, and I believe, and I even, I might say I know that these people create greater change for the same cause that I am fighting for. Finally, what do you think that our Israeli government can do to protect our own wildlife, which is very much under threat, mainly from habitat loss? We have a small country. We have a very uh, very fast-growing population. There's a lot of building. And how can we as individuals help? So, first of all, uh, I can mention that I'm a board member for the Israeli Nature and Heritage Foundation of America. So in this foundation, which is a part of uh, the Israeli Nature and Park Authority, we are raising money to protect our nature. And it's all, all about money at the end of the day. Uh, so we are rehabilitating the oryx population and the fellow deer population and the vulture population and, and, and the sea turtles. We just 
built with Ratag a new sea turtle hospital in Mikhmoret. Uh, but that all requires funds. And if people, your listeners, would like to help, there is a lot we can help with by signing up with membership to the uh, Israel Nature and Park Authority and we, we, by signing, by, by donating money for the uh, Israel Nature and Heritage Foundation of America. And that goes directly to specific projects that people are, are engaged with. So we do see companies and individuals taking responsibility and taking action to protect our fragile environment. And when we're talking about the government, I mean, the government has to do a lot, a lot, way more than it does now, which is not even the bare minimum, okay, uh, which is uh, create a, a more sustainable environment. Think not only about the humans who live here, and even then it doesn't think about all the humans that live here, but also think about the, our nature, our animals, our wildlife, our landscape, our forests. I mean, and there is so much we need to do to protect that. We need to close down the coal uh, and even natural gas uh, polluting energy factories that we have in Israel. And we need to go to more sustainable solution, such as uh, uh, solar, as well as uh, even think about nuclear. We have amazing scientists in the Mahon Weizmann, in the Weizmann Institute, uh, that developed some really, really new innovative technologies to pr uh, produce electricity with a way more sustainable and safe uh, means. I think that there's a real gap in Israel. I don't know what you think between the amazing scientists we have and the amazing people in the environment, both in the professional sphere and in the NGO sphere, you know, what the Nature and Parks Authority does is absolutely amazing. But it seems to me, as a member of the public, that there is no awareness raising at all. I would like to see posters, instead of posters along the street telling me how wonderful my municipality is, I would like po to see posters saying, explaining to me about the importance of recycling and the importance of other things and what's happening to, what's happening to our nature. What do you think the role of education has to be? Is there enough education of the public, of the school children? So I think that there is almost no education on that. Okay, I don't want to be the harshest critic, but I, I will have to be in this case. But I think that the change will come from the children. Okay, we've seen that in the past with protecting flowers. When I was a kid, that's what they taught me. And I came to my parents and told them, no, you cannot pick that flower, it's protected. And I remember, you know, <laughs> preaching them. Uh, and that came from school, okay, as well as putting on a seatbelt in the back seat, as well as many other, putting a helmet. It, it all starts with the school. And, and I think in this case, also, it must start with, with the school. And we have, an, uh, with the Israeli Natural and Park and Heritage Foundation, we have a school uh, program that adopt a class, which we, this is something that we do. And I think that the government and the, the Ministry of Education with the Ministry of Environmental Protection have to do something about it together to educate the children. And the children will educate the parents because the children will be the ones suffering from that, not the parents. And this is a, a very, very strong agent change that we need to, to engage. Roy Galitz, it's been a total pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much and good luck. Thank you so much, Sue.
Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 